As you get comfortable in your seats there, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 22. Mark 2, 13 through 22. Just for some context here, if you haven't recognized, the book of Mark begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark clearly is saying that he is writing a gospel. So far, he has described the power of Jesus by the Spirit of God. He's described the authority of Jesus over all things. And he's described the message of Jesus as he calls for repentance and faith. But this gospel, of course, gospel meaning good news, is truly demonstrated through the ministry of Jesus because it's the forgiveness of sins. Follow along as we read this section in the calling of Levi or Matthew and also a question on fasting and feasting, beginning at verse 13 of chapter 2. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. We consider these words of Jesus' teaching and God's effective call of Levi. We pray together by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It is strong, it is bold, it is life-changing. It has the power that you bear by your Spirit to change and transform the hearts and lives of its hearers and believers. Lord, give us these ears and these hearts to believe and to hear and to understand. We pray that you would change and transform us by the power of this word through your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that anything that is not consistent with your own word shall pass away today, whether my words or our thoughts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What kind of person were you many years ago? I remember the kind of person I was when I moved to Tennessee to begin my ministry over 20 years now. And in fact, it was 1999, actually another century, we say, when I began as a pastor. And at that time, if you know anything about
happening, I began as a single guy. I was one of those few guys at a seminary called to pastor a church and to preach every week who was single and young. I wasn't a youth pastor. I wasn't an assistant pastor. I was the uh, supply pastor and then the, the, the pastor of a small church. And when I began that ministry, I didn't have a lot of experience. I had experience living in a pastor's family, but I didn't have my own pastoral experience. I was single. I didn't know the people that were there. I quickly became, began to know them as the time and weeks and months and years went by. And I think I had a lot of preconceptions and a lot of ideas of what a pastor should be or do. But I hadn't been one yet. Well, now these 20-some years later, I guess it's about 24 years later now, almost, uh, to, uh, to, the, to the week or month of the time that I arrived in Tennessee, I am reminded that I'm a different person. I not only am no longer single, I am married for now many years, have three children. Now I am different in my experience and my ability to discern what my gifts are and what my talents and contributions to the Lord are. The way that I approach people and the way that I deal with things are different. You can't go back. I can't go back and be single again. My life has changed. I can't go back and not be a father anymore. My life has changed. I can't go back and to go back to the time when I could say and have excuses of having no experience in ministry because I'm not there anymore. Things are much different now. And yet so many times don't we want to go back and be something that we were before, and that's not how life works. And in fact, Scripture reminds us that we shouldn't want to go back in most circumstances. But oh, how much more does Jesus make the sinner different? Not just different because of circumstances of marriage or circumstances of a job or circumstances of life, but a circumstance of a sinner. Someone who has lived to please himself and to live for himself now to be someone who wants to please the Lord. What difference. You see, this is the radical ministry of Jesus. It changes us not only because of time and circumstances. It changes us because we become different people. In this passage, we're reminded that Jesus calls sinners. Jesus creates joy, and Jesus changes everything. First of all, Jesus calls sinners. What a story of Levi. If you know anything about the situation of Levi, it's an amazing transformation of this man. First of all, a reminder, Jesus is teaching the crowd here. And as he teaches the crowd, we, we get the idea this is a, a constant thing that he's having to do because the crowds are always coming to, to find him. He's periodically going from the crowd to a desert or a desolate place to pray or to get a break or to do those things, and they come to him. This is the theme here throughout the scriptures. They keep coming to him. In fact, the language tells us they continued to come. And then it tells us he continued to teach them. This is an ongoing thing. In fact, we're reminded in the previous chapter that he came to preach and to teach. But here's the call of Levi. Levi is such an interesting man because he was a tax collector. Now, what about taxes? We all love to pay taxes, don't we? 
In fact, here in Myrtle Beach, if you're a tourist, you're going to pay some extra taxes you don't even know about. In fact, we pay taxes to pay for all kinds of different things that we enjoy and all kinds of different things that we maybe don't enjoy. But here are the taxes collected in Capernaum. There are two types of taxes. One were stated taxes, and the other was duties. Now, these stated taxes included these three categories. They're not in your outline there, so you don't have to fill this in. But if you want to write it down, you can. Kind of an interesting tax code. So these stated taxes included three things. First of all, there was a poll tax. When women you got to the age of 12 or men you got to the age of 14, then, of course, you had to pay an annual poll tax until you reached 65, which most people did not in those days. Then you would also have to pay a ground tax. In other words, if you were someone who had grain or was uh, growing grain, you had to pay one-tenth for your grain. You also had to pay one-fifth for oil and wine. And in some circumstances, particularly in a place like Capernaum, there were also ground taxes on fish. So Wayne, I'm sorry you're going to have to pay taxes on the fish you catch. Then third, there was an income tax. Now, their income tax may have been high in their time. We don't consider it high now. It's 1% on your annual income. So you had a poll tax, a ground tax, and an income tax. Now, the, the tax collector didn't really have much uh, gravitas or much ability to collect extra taxes on these stated taxes. But when it came to the duties, boy, that was a different story. You see, what would happen is these tax collectors would, would bid on the job. So that it was a sign for a certain district to collect so many taxes every year, and they were required to give that amount to the Roman government. And so people would bid on this office with the understanding that when it came to the duties, they could collect a little extra and keep what they collected extra for themselves. So here were the duties taxes. First of all, there was a duty tax on transportation. So to use the road, or in Capernaum in particular, the harbor, you might pay a duty for that. And of course, it was a little undetermined exactly what that duty was. Then there were also some sales taxes. One sales tax on everything, but on certain things, there were sales taxes. And again, there was not a fixed rate. Thirdly, they had taxes on import and export. And Capernaum was right on the border of another district. And so here, Levi could not only collect for the harbor and for fish and for these things, he could also collect duties on imports or exports. But one of the more interesting things, they also had a wheel tax on carts per wheel. If you had a cart that had four wheels, you paid more tax than someone had a cart with two wheels. And, of course, all of this was rather nebulous, so the tax collector could be collecting a little more uh, than what they would expect. And there was here in these duties a lot of extortion that went on and bribery. So here were the taxes in Capernaum. So what did people think of the tax collectors? Well, you can imagine... If you're the tax collector today, people don't really like you. Imagine if you work for the IRS and have to knock on doors for a living. You're not necessarily the most liked man. But here, understand that these tax collectors were known for their rank materialism. And that's in part because, especially if you were a Jewish tax collector, you had bid on this job to, in essence, work for the Romans and for Herod Antipas, 
who was considered especially egregious because he was half Edomite, and he was someone working in concert with the Romans who they considered their oppressors. So in one sense, they considered the tax collector not only someone who is just a rank materialist, all he cares about is money, but he's working for the enemy, almost a betrayal, so to speak. And of course, in a reaction to the nationalistic prejudice against the tax collectors, who in some circumstances, we might say today, had a legitimate job function, they lived a rapacious and immoral lifestyle. In other words, they said, if you're not going to accept me, and you're going to consider me basically someone who has betrayed my country, then I'm just going to live the kind of lifestyle I want to live. And they were known for it. And because of this, they were considered unclean. In fact, in Jewish society, these things were happening to the tax collector. First of all, they were disqualified to serve either as a judge or as a witness in a court case. If a tax collector came to testify in court, it would not be considered acceptable testimony. Secondly, they were excommunicated from the synagogues. You wanted to come and worship, you couldn't go. You were not allowed to come into that place. And finally, their whole family would be disgraced from society. They would be considered total outcasts. So here is Jesus walking down the streets of Capernaum, and he runs into Levi. The understanding is this is not just the, the bottom-rung tax collector. This is probably someone who's a little bit upward in the ranks by the language that's used in particularly Mark and Luke and Matthew in these different uh, situations. And so here's this guy. He is unclean. He's a rank materialist. He's a betrayal uh, of his own countrymen and an outcast. And he's considered someone that nobody wants to be like or be around. And he gives a simple call. Follow me. And notice what happens. In fact, Luke says this. After leaving everything. After leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, this is, on the one hand, you know, he just doing this in this one situation here, but, but the idea here is we know what happens next. He becomes one of the 12 disciples who follows Jesus throughout his ministry. So when he leaves everything, this is not just leaving everything for the afternoon and putting a sign on the table that says, no more am I here today, I'll be back in 15 minutes or whenever it's going to be. This is really leaving everything. This is a radical change. In fact, this radical change here prompts him to do something rather unusual. It says, verse 15, as he reclined at table, as Jesus reclined at table in his, that is Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You know, this is kind of funny here. Jesus walks by Levi's table, and he says to him, follow me. And then evidently, Jesus walks to Levi's house, where Levi is preparing this great feast for him once he understands what Jesus is asking him to do. Luke calls it a great feast. And in fact, it's interesting, there is something else that has happened here. 
is that Jesus and his disciples were there, but there were also all these other people, tax collectors and sinners. Now, what were these sinners? Well, these were the individuals who did not closely follow the Old Testament law like the Pharisees did. In fact, they perhaps, some of them may have given up and said, I just can't live by all these rules, I can't do it. And so they just kind of gave up and they were more secular Jewish people of the day. Uh, they were those in part who may have been among those who were uh, acceding more and more to the Greek culture of the day, speaking the Greek language, doing Greek things. It's also possible that these were just individuals that were, that were like some of the others in the area. They were outcast because of their background or their situation. But they were those that the Pharisees would not associate with. And they all came to this dinner with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this radical change of Levi, he goes from collecting taxes that day, probably extorting and bribing and getting extra things and thinking about his, uh, his tables of, of financial destruction of the society around him. And now he's following Jesus and preparing dinner for him because he recognizes, evidently, the change in his life. And so here's... What takes place? He not only is preparing a feast for Jesus, he is now witnessing to those around him by inviting these others. It's a way for him to say, look what I found, or look who has called me. Now what does it mean to walk away from something? You see, one thing that will change is that Levi or Matthew's company will change too. It begins where these tax collectors and sinners are around him because that's who is associated with him. He doesn't have access to these other individuals, but over time, he will more and more be around other believers as he studies under Jesus. There were some guys who played golf this week, and I have to say, there's always a little bit of me that wonders, should I be a golf player? Because after all, there's a lot of good golf courses around here, and I've chosen not to be a golfer. But, you know, it's interesting, if you know anything about me, you know that I love sports. And when I was in high school, I didn't know, I had never played golf, and I thought, well, I'll try out for the golf team, I'll learn how to play golf. So I did. My junior year in, in high school, I went and I played golf, and I learned how to play, and I was playing on the course near us. It was just a nine-hole course out in the middle of a rural place in Illinois. And I played golf, and towards the end of that particular season, we had a little tournament. It was a charity tournament, one of those things where you play as many holes as you can, and you're supposed to raise money for charity and all this kind of stuff. And so we went out and we played golf, and I was with my friends. Of course, I'm not a very good golfer. I just learned this year how to golf. And we get to go, and of course, you know how it is. The more holes you play, the tireder you get. And the tireder you get, the more grumpy you get. And pretty soon you understand that uh, you're getting worse at your golf game. And if you kind of want to take your golf game seriously, it's rather frustrating when you can't hit the ball the way you want and you can't do the things that you want. And I don't remember the circumstances or what happened, but one of my friends chuckled while I was swinging the club. And here it was, I got so angry, I took my club and I threw it at him, flung it at him. 
Now, fortunately, I did not hit him. But I took stock of my golfing on that day. I lived maybe a mile from the golf course. I picked up my club, took my clubs to my house, and I've never returned except for a few times later on in life. I didn't return for several years to a golf course. I decided at that moment that golf was not for me and my temper and my extreme, at that time, competitiveness. But that's what it is to be forgiven. It's a radical life change. It's a reminder that we leave something. We leave it never to return to it. Now, I, I played golf a couple times after that. We had a church golf event later on in Tennessee, years later. I went one time, I think, with some guys in college to golf. I wasn't really interested in it at that point. But here when we have this radical change of being a sinner coming to Christ, there are certain things that we leave behind forever. No more was Levi going to be extorting and bribing people anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that being a tax collector was necessarily an evil profession in and of itself. But it meant for him that in his calling, that was what he had to leave behind. You see, for the person who comes and follows Jesus, there's to be no more sinful lifestyle. No more sinful accomplices. No more of those things that take us away from Jesus. Now we're following Jesus in a new life. And then we get to the criticism of the Pharisees. And we understand why this is such a radical thing for them. You see, the scribes here in verse 16, the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he do this? Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What is the point that he's making here? The Pharisees are asking the question, why are you associating with social and religious pariahs and endangering your own reputation? It was their understanding that if they hung out with people who did not follow the laws, like the sinners, or they hung out with people like the tax collectors who had been excommunicated from the synagogues because of their behavior and their lifestyle, that if they associate with them, then they would be tainted by them and they would then become unclean like they were. Now there's a little bit of truth to this. God does not want the believers to yoke themselves together with unbelievers. He doesn't want them to marry unbelievers. He doesn't want them necessarily to become business partners with unbelievers or to become so closely associated with them that you cannot distinguish the believer from the unbeliever. But the Pharisees went the extra step to say, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm only going to be in my group, the ones I know that are striving to keep the law. But Jesus says, this. He's saying, in essence, I'm the savior of sinners. What better place to find sinners than tax collectors and sinners, after all? 
In fact, we can see other places in Scripture where he comes and there are prostitutes that come to him, where there are lepers that come to him, where there are all kinds of ostracized individuals because of their sin or because of the, the, the situation in their lives that come to him. And he comes to them in order for them to hear the gospel. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are not sick have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So in one sense, he says, I am the savior of sinners. In the other sense, he's giving a slap in the face of those who consider themselves self-righteous. Here's the problem with the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees was not an understanding that it was important to keep the law, because it is important. God wants us, once we come to him, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what? You will obey my commands. He wants you to live a lifestyle that pleases God. And the only way that's truly possible is if your sins are forgiven and God changes you and gives you the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live that life that pleases Jesus. And even then we struggle with it. But the idea here is Jesus is saying, you don't think there's anything wrong with you, and you think there's everything wrong with these other people. But let me tell you this, I'm here for the sinner. If you came in the door this morning thinking that, hey, I've got it made. I'm a good person. When I get up to the gates of heaven, I'm going to tell Jesus when he asks me, why should I let you in the gates of heaven? I'm going to say, because I'm a good person and I've tried my best. And Jesus is going to say, get away from me, you self-righteous person. Your best is not good enough. In fact, because you are righteous in your sight, I never came for you. I came for sinners who understand they have no right or privilege to enter the gates of heaven. Even if they strive to do their best, even if they've lived a wonderfully moral life, even if you're like the Pharisees, who even Jesus said, unless you have righteousness surpassing the Pharisees. In other words, they were the, the best of the best, the best moral people in all of society. If your righteousness does not exceed them, you cannot enter the gates of heaven. And so then you might think, well, what hope do I have? Because if we're honest, we know we're bottom feeders, aren't we? We're those who've lied to people, who've disobeyed our parents. We have done things we're not proud of doing. In the darkness and loneliness of our hearts and our lives and our closets and our rooms and our devices, we look at things and do things and say things we shouldn't do. What hope do we have? Well, this is what Jesus does. He creates joy. This next little pericope or section of scripture says this in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and Jesus came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You guys aren't taking seriously the things of God. You ever had somebody say to you, that they never saw Jesus smile or laugh, and so they don't understand why we should do that. There have been some very, very serious believers in church history. There have been some that say that you should never be loose, you should never be someone who tells jokes and takes things lightly. This seems to be the Pharisees here. 
This is their practice of fasting. Now, John's disciples were fasting because this is consistent with the baptism of repentance. If you truly understand your sin, there is an appropriate nature of fasting as you understand the gravity of your sin before a holy God. But for the Pharisees, this was or had become an expression of piety and self-consecration. In fact, the Mosaic Law, if you understand the law, there was a call for a fast. It was once a year on the Day of Atonement. But by the time of the first century, the scribal tradition said that you should fast twice a week. Once on Mondays and once on Thursdays. That's quite a diet, isn't it? So here they are, they're Pharisees trying to follow all the scribal traditions in addition to all the Mosaic Law. Every Monday they refuse to eat, every Thursday they refuse to eat to show their piety and their self-consecration. In other words, they're dedicating themselves to God and they would actually put ashes on their heads, whiten their faces, and wear crumpled or unclean clothing and not bathe that day. Now that's taking religion seriously. You know what it's like to go about in society and, and feel as if you're dirty and everything on purpose to show that you're more religious than the next guy. So these are the Pharisees. They're coming to Jesus and they say, here, we are, John's disciples are fasting. And of course, there's some reason for that. We're fasting, but here you are. Feasting in the house of a tax collector and a sinner. What in the world are you doing? You're not showing you're religious enough. And so Jesus says, in my presence, we have joy. When I'm gone, there will be time for fasting. In other words, Jesus says there is appropriate time, there are appropriate times for fasting. It is appropriate from time to time, but now is not the time. Why? Because he's here. Because Jesus is here. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The practice of fasting here was not appropriate for the people who were receiving forgiveness of their sins. These tax collectors, these sinners, these fishermen like James and John who are with them at this point... They have come from a background where they understood their sin. They began to understand through the ministry of Jesus how wonderful Jesus was, but because he was there, he had called them from their life of sin to now follow him. Now they were to practice feasting. Of course, feasting was considered not reputable. Turn your nose at those who feast too much, don't we? Particularly if we come from a, a particular Christian background where we say that certain things should not be celebrated. Things like playing cards and watching movies and going to dances and doing all those things. That, after all, we say, is not serious enough and is something that is for all those sinners out there. And yet Jesus says it's inappropriate. Feasting is considered by Jesus to be mandatory in his presence. And it's actually inappropriate to do something else. After all, when he gives the situation of the wedding feast, this is the one time where the people, and even the Pharisees, could let their hair down. They had these great celebrations. They didn't last that day. They lasted a week. 
And they had wine and celebrations and dancing and all kinds of different things. And Jesus says, when you're there at this wedding feast, are you supposed to fast? Of course not. It's completely inappropriate. And yet, what do we do? Sometimes we're so serious about our religious business that we forget to enjoy the presence of God. Here's the first catechism question, after all. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When I went off to college, I'd been trained by my parents and by my families to go to church every week. And I maintained that practice in college. I was very proud of it. In fact, I was the guy in college that even if I stayed up all night on Saturday night, I would still go to church the next day. Because it was my habit. I was proud of it. It was a rote exercise. I would go. I wouldn't necessarily pay that closely to the sermon. I wouldn't necessarily enjoy the service. I wouldn't necessarily go to learn the things of the kingdom. But I was there to show my self-consecration and my piety. And in fact, the greatest joy that my buddies and I had were taking those little attendance books that they had in those days, and we would write pseudonyms in them. Spider-Man was there one week, Superman was there another week, or whoever it might have been. So much so that one time one of the elders came to us and said, you guys shouldn't do that anymore, we want to know who's here. But now when I come to worship, when I understand forgiveness, which I don't think I understood in my college days, because I was a Pharisee. I was self-righteous. I thought I knew better than other people. I thought I was a pretty good guy. After all, I grew up in a Christian family. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My uncle was a pastor. I had another uncle who was a missionary. My grandmother grew up in Egypt, was born in Egypt on the mission field. We had that church tradition, and because of that, my family heritage was very religious. But then when I began to do things, perhaps, or think things I shouldn't think in college, and I didn't want to respond to God's call to go into ministry, and I went off to graduate school to study history, and I got up in Lansing, or not in Lansing, but in uh, Bowling Green, Ohio, and I got up in that place, and it got to the point in classes where I had such an impact by God's word about truth, I realized my whole life was running away from what God wanted for my life. And I think I realized, looking back on that time, that I thought I was a pretty good guy. But when I looked and took stock in my life, I realized what a worthless guy I was. So now when I come to worship, yeah, there are sometimes it's rote worship. Sometimes I come and it's my habit, and, and it's my job now. It's not like I can go and, uh, and, and say, you know, hey, I, I've come and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I have to come. You guys would notice if the pastor didn't show up to worship. But now Jesus is real because I know he's forgiven me for my self-righteousness. He's forgiven me from those things that I've done wrong. He's forgiven me from those things I'm not going to share with you today because I don't want you to know about me. He's forgiven me of those things. And because of that forgiveness, like Levi, who, who now is feasting in his presence, he is real, and the worship here is joyful because I know who Jesus is. 
Jesus changes everything. This is the point of this passage. When it talks about the wineskins and it talks about the patch and all those things. Of course, I remember wearing those jeans. I was just talking about it the other day with my kids when we used to wear those blue jeans. And we only had two or three pairs of jeans growing up. Now you can have 15 or 20 or whatever. You can just go wherever and get some. And I remember my, my mother would have those patches you put on the knees because I was always putting the knees out. And, you know, they would shrink on the thing, and so sometimes they wouldn't really cover the whole hole and, and all this stuff. So, so I know what he's talking about here with the patches. I, I'm not quite as familiar with the wineskins because I don't have any in my house. But here, he's saying we go, first of all, from sinner to repentant following. It's not as if Jesus says, okay, I invite sinners to come and I don't care what you do anymore. We're just all having a great big party. No, he says, I'm inviting you to come to know that even though you are a sinner, even though you might have done terrible things, even though you might be ostracized from society, yet I come to you because if you repent and follow me, you will be forgiven. So you go from sinner to being a repentant follower. In other words, you stop sinning, you ask for God's grace, and then not because it's a religious expression of piety, but because you understand the grace and forgiveness of God, you don't want to do anything else but follow Jesus. And you're new. You go from this situation where they were for now hundreds of years preparing for God's kingdom to now seeing God's kingdom fulfilled in Jesus. They're going from fasting to feasting. They're going from the old to the new. We have the expression now, you can't put it back in the bottle. This is really what he's saying here. You can't put the church, he's saying here, you can't put the church back in the bottle of legalistic Judaism or Phariseeism as a reformed sect. It's totally new and different. Believers cannot go back. Levi couldn't go back to extorting and bribing people as a tax collector. The others couldn't go back to their sinful lifestyle. Sinners cannot go back and do what they did before because now there's something new. I'm so cheap, I guess it's my Scottish blood in me. I'm so cheap that I don't like to buy new things. I don't buy new cars, I buy old ones. I don't buy new electronics, all the phones that our family has, except if there might be a spender in our family. All the phones that, that we have uh, basically are refurbished phones that you get from eBay or other sources. And I begin to think about these refurbished products, laptops, uh, cell phones, iPads, whatever they are. And, and, and you buy these refurbished products and they're supposed to be like new, right? And I've had a good experience with them. I've rarely had one that hasn't worked to, to the credit of those I've purchased from. Maybe, maybe it's my, my luck. I don't know if you want to call it luck. But imagine you buy this refurbished product and the guy you sell it to, uh, sells it to you says, okay, now, now that you've bought this refurbished product, for your enjoyment and benefit, I'm going to make it revert back to where it was before. It would be useless to me. I don't want it back to some owner's 
situation. I want it back to where maybe they had to fix things because it was broken before. I, I don't want it to go back to those situations before all the updates, the endless updates that happen on all these devices. I don't want all that. What Jesus does for us, believers, is we are the perfectly refurbished instruments of Jesus Christ. If we go back to the old, it's useless. Don't go back to the sin. Don't go back to the, the prodigal son who's eating the pods of the pigs in the pig pen. Don't go back to that. You are a new person in Jesus Christ. And this is Mark's point. Jesus' point is like this. This is what this passage tells us. First of all, we're all sinners. It doesn't matter if you think you're self-righteous or not. We're all sinners before a holy God. Secondly, we need reconciliation with God. Your sin disqualifies you from being in his presence or from being in heaven or being with the people of God. But by God's grace, he gives us that reconciliation. This is the third point. We need the ministry of Christ's effective call to both repentance Stopping our sin, calling out for God's grace, receiving his forgiveness, and by faith, repentance unto life, and faith in Jesus Christ, then we are saved. His call to repentance and faith, and then what happens? We experience joy. We experience joy. And we experience a changed life so that now, now, when we come to worship, it's not to earn favor with God. It's not to look good with others. It's not because it's something our parents practiced or instilled within us. We come because Jesus forgave us of our sins, and we're new. And when he's with us, there's joy. If you're struggling, I, I want to invite you. If you're struggling with joy in Jesus Christ, come see me this week. My door is open. We all struggle sometimes from time to time with sin. We also struggle with self-righteousness. We also struggle with the burdens of the world. But in Christ, if we understand who he is and what he's done, when he's with us and he's present with us, we experience joy. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you that you came for sinners like me. And like everybody sitting here, we thank you that you make new things from the old. We thank you that we are new creatures in Christ. But Lord, I pray too that those of us who are having trouble experiencing joy, that you, Lord, will remind us that every time your people got together, it seems, they celebrated the joy of a table together. Lord, help us to have that joy that we might serve you, loving you, knowing that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name.